from Acts chapter 9. This is the last in our series of Jesus' encounters with people. Uh, this sermon series. And this one is a humdinger. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men and women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did nothing and, and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Told you it was a humdinger. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Be with us today. Fill us with your spirit. I pray, God, that these words of mine, they may not be my words, but they may be your words, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pure and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We have been graced recently by um, Bud and Bruce from our church have come to our home and with the help of uh, a few others, Ron uh, and uh, 
but uh, grandson Danny, they planted grass and pulled some things. We had, we had a, a small, very small yard, but we wanted to complete our fence and did amazing work. And we're so graced by this. And, you know, our home has sort of become, I don't know, I guess it's sort of the social hub of the neighborhood for the kids. So it's fun to have it look like an oasis, you know, which it really does now. They've, they've made, Bud and Bruce and others have helped visually express the reality of, of what it is, what God is doing spiritually. They planted grass and the grass grew pretty quickly in the front yard. We planted grass in the back in our yards, kind of like these little strips, which is, we used to have an acre and a half in PA. I have to admit, I don't miss mowing the grass. So that's fine by me, but it's nice to have grass for the dogs and, and, uh, and of course it's inviting to people. But anyway, we planted, they planted grass in the back and we were watching this. It was growing in the front but I'm looking at the ground, ground in the back, and I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't get any sunlight. And Bud said it would grow slower, but it would grow. It's like, but I'm wondering, will it really grow? It's like, because it's really slow. And for days and days, it was just seed. And there was, no, there was no grass growing. And Bud's a brilliant gardener. He knows the stuff. I'm like, okay. But I have to admit, it challenged my faith. <laughs> and I started thinking, well, maybe we need an alternative. If this doesn't grow, because Bud was pretty sure it would grow, but he said it would be slow. And will it really grow? Would, it, would the grass grow here? I mean, there's no light. There's a, there, there's, it doesn't get any direct sunlight. It gets ambient or it gets scattered light, but no direct sunlight. And for the longest time, it just looked like it just sat there. In the atmosphere, the, it isn't necessarily as friendly to it, right? Would it grow? And I started saying, maybe we, in my mind, thinking, maybe we need to just have in the back of our mind an alternative if this doesn't grow. You know, what will happen? And, but you know what? This week, it started to grow. The grass was coming up. Slowly but surely, the grass grows. In some places, it grows right away. And in other places, not so fast, but eventually that seed does its thing. Can it really grow here? I mean, here, really? I don't see much happening. The soil's kind of hard. Yes, yes. Bud was right about the buds. Yes. Well, sometimes ministry can be like that. There's harsh soil. There's receptive soil. There's everything in between. There's harsh people. There's receptive people. There's everything in between. But even so, our Lord says go. And when we do, the gospel is able to grow. In our passage, Saul is a destructive menace. This guy, ooh, murderous. Talk about harsh soil. He was there when dear Stephen, an early disciple, is killed for his faith. Back in chapter 7 and 8, Saul standing right there approving it. At that point, persecution breaks out against the early church and people scatter. And now Saul is trying to track down and imprison more Christ followers. Scholars point out that Damascus was a major commercial center. 
It was located in the Roman province of Syria. And it was, it was the nearest important city outside of Jerusalem at the time. It was about 150 miles from Jerusalem, four to six days journey. You can find this in your commentaries and stuff. Saul may have feared that Damascus would have been a launch pad for Christian faith to spread. So Saul is trying to shut it down before that can happen. There are still those who are trying to do that very thing. This past January, human rights advocate Dr. Yuwalina Yu Ochab wrote in Forbes magazine that according to the annual report by Open Doors, Open Doors is an international NGO advocating on behalf of persecuted Christians, according to their report from this past January, the persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels since the world watch list began nearly 30 years ago. Open Doors reported that across 76 countries, more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination from their, for their faith. An increase of 20 million since last year. There are Saul's still on the move in high places. Dr. Ochab points out that one in every seven Christians live under at least high levels of persecution or discrimination for their faith. For the first time in years, the top of the list was taken by Afghanistan rather than the usual corporate North, corporate North Korea. As the report suggests, since the Taliban takeover in August 2021, Christian minorities in Afghanistan have had to flee or go into hiding. Quote, those whose names are known to the Taliban are being hunted down. If men are discovered to have a Christian faith, they are executed. If women are discovered, they may escape execution but face a life of slavery or imprisonment. Because of the dire situation in Afghanistan, there is a risk that there will soon be no Christians left in Afghanistan. North Korea moved to number two in the list. Despite moving down in the rankings, North Korea has reached its highest level for persecution. This is, ca- this is caused in part by the what's called the anti-reactionary thought law there. There is no freedom of religion or belief in North Korea, and Christianity has been persecuted there for decades. Quote, if Christians are discovered, according to the report, they and their families are deported to labor camps as political prisoners, political criminals, or killed on the spot. Gathering with other Christians is therefore almost impossible and must only be attempted in utmost secrecy. Somalia took third place with Christian minorities being explicitly targeted by the terrorist jihadist group group Al-Shabaab. Even being suspected, she writes, of being a convert to Christianity means life-threatening danger. Anyone found in possession of a Bible or other printed Christian material is executed with the blessing of their relatives and community. In Pakistan, Christian minorities are said to constitute roughly a quarter of all blasphemy accusations. This despite being less than 2% of the population. Girls and young women continue to be abducted, forcefully married, and converted. 
all Christians suffer from institutionalized discrimination. Occupations seen as low and dirty are reserved for Christians by the authorities. 620 Christians were killed in that country that year. In Iran, lastly, converts to Christianity are often targets of violent attacks. Leaders and members of Christian house churches have been arrested, prosecuted, and given long prison sentences for crimes against national security. Well, more could be said and read from Dr. Ochab's report, of course, but you get the point. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who face unimaginable cost simply for being a professing Christ follower. There are challenges here in the USA, for sure. But reading about what's going on globally certainly keeps that all in perspective. It's been said that while many Christians around the world fear a raised fist, Christians in the USA fear a raised eyebrow. Perhaps there is something to that, but followers of Jesus here still face costs that can hit hard, if in a different kind of way, different than what what we just read about, but still valid. As Iraq war veteran and religious freedom lawyer David French wrote in the Wall Street Journal, during my legal career defending free speech and religious freedom on campuses, college campuses, I saw more than 100 colleges attempt to, de- to de- attempt to de-recognize Christian student groups or reject them from campus simply for reserving their membership or leadership for Christian students. <laughs> Imagine that. Baylor sociologist and fellow Christian George Yancey writes that he asked academics if they would be less willing to hire someone who is either a fundamentalist or an evangelical. And he found, as he writes, that more than half would be less willing to hire a fundamentalist and almost two in five would be less willing to hire an evangelical. The academics, Dr. Yancey says, answered my survey and they explicitly stated they would discriminate against a job candidate who is a conservative Protestant. Dr. Yancey's data indicates, this is interesting, Dr. Yancey's data indicates that 32% of all Americans like conservative Christians significantly less than other social groups. And in comparison, about 31% of all Americans like Muslims significantly less than other social groups. So while we certainly don't have to face what believers in more hostile countries face, we do, we do have stuff to face. Saul is still on the move. There are still Saul's in high places. And we will have to face them. But whatever we face, our text assures us that our Lord is out there too, on the move even where it's bad, even among the worst, as the gospel of John chapter one assures us, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The Lord's light knocks Saul to the ground. It's not 
that Saul gets a pass. God's going to work with him, but he doesn't get a pass. The Lord confronts him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's clear that Jesus apparently takes persecution quite personally. Why do you persecute me? In other words, while Saul was hitting the church, Jesus has actually been feeling the pain, as Sri Lankan New Testament scholar Ajit Fernando describes it. Dr. Fernando notes that the double vocative, Saul, Saul, is reminiscent of the way God's voice was often heard in the Old Testament. The light Saul sees must have been strong, for it's around noon when he encounters it, he lights up the day. It would, it would have reminded Saul of the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament. Jesus gets in Saul's grill here, so to speak, with a multi-sensory full court press coming at him visually and in tones that evoke the Hebrew scriptures that Saul would have known well. Saul is befuddled. He's literally, he's literally blinded. Saul thought he was doing the Lord's mission. But the Lord himself doesn't see it that way. And now Saul can't see it all. But Jesus doesn't hit back and do damage to blind Saul and then shut him down. He tells Saul to get up. Saul's going to have to take a moment. Three days of being blind with no food or drink. But then the Lord has work for him to do. And so as we confront opposition to our Christian belief in the Saul's we meet today, we need to remind ourselves again and again and again and again and again about how the God we're persecuted for actually works. No one is beyond God's reach. No one, not even Saul. Our Lord knew just how to get to him, even as he was on his way to attack Christians This Saul, of course, would become Paul later in Acts 13 on Cyprus. He changes his Jewish Saul to the Roman Paul. And he would go on to be a profound and courageous witness to the gospel, as well as the author of a large portion of the New Testament. So he went. From, he goes, as you know, probably from being a persecutor of the gospel to be a, wit- a witness to the gospel. Now, of course, there's no guarantee that the most vicious persecutors of Christians will themselves become Christians. But Saul's conversion, conversion assures us it's always possible. As one of the great summary statements of Christian faith in the Protestant Reformation, the Second Helvetic Confession, as that statement, Wonderful confession says, we are to have good hope for all. And although God knows who are his, we must hope well of all and not rashly judge anyone to be a reprobate. In other words, don't count anybody out. That spirit is at the core of our Protestant Reformation heritage. You can find it in in the 1500s. Now, certainly no one would have blamed the early Christian church for judging Paul, condemning him, and considering him hopeless and running away. Who could blame Ananias for basically saying to the Lord, and don't you love this reply? I mean, he basically says, in essence, are you sure about this? I mean, you know who this is, right? But the Lord is clear. 
go. This man, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Well, the Lord reaches out to broken people, doesn't he? Even dangerous people, doesn't he? And he does this, wait for it, through us. So Ananias goes and gets Saul, proving that he is as devout and committed as he's later described in Acts 22. And again, you gotta love as devout and committed as this guy is. He's like, are, are you sure? Are you sure? And you can always ask that question. When you're not sure, go ahead and ask. The Lord doesn't rebuke Ananias here. He guides him. You see, not only is the Lord able to transform people in a way that blows our minds, our Lord is able to guide us through the process in our role in that. Verse 11 and 12, listen to how he guides Ananias here. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The Lord guides Ananias very specifically here. Imagine this as, you know, something you think about at the beginning of your day, you know, go to blank on blank street and ask for blank from blank for he is praying in a vision, you know, insert whoever God puts on your heart there, right? Very specific. God is able to guide. With clear assurance, he can show you the dangerous person, the difficult person he wants you to reach. And when we move in that, we may well find ourselves praying, laying hands on someone and referring to them as a brother or sister in a way we never imagined we would. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, brother Saul. He calls him brother. The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you, you may remember, (laughs) on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are people called to help dangerous people see. Oh, did your arms just fold in like a block? Like, notice what I did there. Ooh, I don't know. You know, that's scary, isn't it? In the face of persecution, this is how our God operates. I'm not saying there aren't times he may tell us to run, right? There's, There's times for that or step back or withdraw. That can happen too. We know that. But so can this. So can this. Sometimes it may be run away, Take a strategic retreat, go pray. Sometimes it's go to that person. It's a both and. And often, we, this is our default, and we forget there's also this option. God's option B. Being interruptible, getting visions for unexpected people, and imagining people being transformed. We can ask ourselves, as we see what happens in Saul's life here, can we imagine something similar happening with someone we could never imagine it happening to? Our imaginations in the spirit can be a gift of God here. It's like that backyard. Can grass really grow here? I mean, I know you said your seeds of the gospel, 
but is it, can it hear? Really? I, I don't see it. I see thorns and, you know, holes and rocks. Before you know it, <clears throat> if we look, grass, gospel fruit grows. Can the gospel really grow there and there and there? Yes. The gospel is still moving forward in the spirit, growing in places we could never imagine. We can ask, Lord, am I interruptible? Can I hear your call to the person I would least expect? When God gives you a vision to walk down the street to that difficult neighbor or across the cubicle to that harsh colleague or down the dorm room hall or across the locker there, across the locker hall to that most anti-Christian person in the place. Saul still exists. Sauls of the world are real, but so is God. And as the Sauls of the world get in our grill, we can always and forever have good hope that God is able to get in theirs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. We hear of your dear ones persecuted and we pray for them and we pray you'd make us alive and awake for how we can support our brothers and sisters and believe for them. And we are inspired by witness of your people in these harsh places. And Lord, help us in our harsh places to take courage and trust you for what you can yet do and where you can yet grow. Yes, when sometimes you say back off and give space and maybe even run away and, and go pray. And sometimes you say run to, run toward. Help us to move with you and not assume and to have, as the second Alvedic confession says, good hope for all. Even if we withdraw and pray for them or if we move toward them, Help us to move in the mode of the gospel that grows in unexpected, harrowing, and amazing ways. You are so good. Help us to trust you. And Lord, we pray for the persecuted church in Iran, Afghanistan, in Pakistan, North Korea, in Somalia, and on college campuses in our country. In schools and workplaces where it may look not as severe in some ways but is still hard in others help us to be faithful we love you we believe help our unbelief holy spirit call to mind now if there's someone in our lives you would have us reach out to even someone difficult especially even someone who's a bit scary thank you lord in jesus name amen